0: Thank you very much for coming. I must begin by noting the honour I feel to be part of this university and my old college and especially the Griffith Institute that's celebrating its 75th birthday this year with such colleagues in it and with such students. And also such a distinguished predecessor, although I fear I will course do things a little bit differently. I was trained here in the philological tradition that has characterized Oxford Egyptology from the great Sir Alan Gardner onwards. But over the years I have grown concerned at the exclusions that this style of scholarship can involve, especially with poetry. This is not only about neglecting the materiality of the manuscripts, which irritates a museum curator, which I have been, but, above all, the exclusion of various other material and visceral things. And so today I'll speak about a couplet from the most famous surviving ancient Egyptian poem, The Tale of Sinuha, to outline some of these issues. And since academics are not the only people entitled to speak with authority about poetry, I'm accompanied by the actress and author and good friend, Barbara Ewing, who will give a professional voice to the passages I'm discussing. Increasingly, critics have noted how philology has offered, often has inspired to scientific, cool, immutable, unambiguous certainties, while in contrast, our reactions to texts continually vary on individual and institutional levels, being by their nature contingent and subjective. When a student, I was, and I still am, very fond of E.M. Forster, and the famous Kiss Sniffy Essily in a room with a view exemplifies what I mean about how we conceptualize what a text means for us. In 1986, at Queens, when I first watched the Merchant Ivory film, I was slightly shocked as a pedantic philologist that where the book had the hugely resonant word violets, symbolic of spring and the Renaissance, the film had instead an admittedly stunning field of barley. For good reasons, I now realize, But the word was violets. Not Barley. And the passionate music, Il Bel Sonno di Doretta, was slightly anachronistic. Why not instead say Lucia de Lammemore, which forced her use elsewhere to ravish another heroine and make her realize her lack of self-knowledge? Of course that, my own lack of self-knowledge, was the problem. The masterly film soon worked its way into me, and I began to appreciate the director's wisdom. Firstly, he had used visual beauty to create meaning a regrettable necessity for filmmaker and an absolute anathema to a philologist since we know, surely, that a text is only words and ideological constructs and has no direct reference to material reality. When a writer says daffodils like Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale or tamarisk like an ancient Egyptian poet in The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant we don't need to imagine any visual reality, surely but simply lexicography. Just as when Forster talks of misty olives, it is just words, and there is, as theoreticians tell us, nothing outside the text. Beauty, surely, is entirely meaningless for the philologist, like emotion, a view, that sort of thing. Secondly, James Ivory did not deal only with the surface of the words, but instead recreated the emotional impact intended by Forster, which is too risky a strategy to gain any academic approval, except it worked. That chapter had always moved me, and I soon realized the film moved me in a similarly intense way, but intensity is another unphilological quality, perhaps. So all of this was a bit different from how one was taught to write about texts, and indeed the film manages to recreate this passage of text with hardly any words at all. So from this personal anecdote, I would argue for a shift in perspective in our traditional approaches, which have often aimed for a single correct urtext, a single translation, a single logocentric reading. The power of texts is perhaps more material, more multiple, more visceral, than Egyptologists have sometimes assumed. Now it's quite easy to sense this with our virtual contemporary author Forster, but if we turn to the tale of Sinuha in all its various forms from around 1850 BCE onwards, it's much harder to reconstruct meanings. And nevertheless, I will suggest that traditional philology can be complemented by risky aspects such as beauty and emotion and perhaps even needs to be. Sinuhe, incidentally, has also had a film made of it in 1954, but not, alas, by James Ivory. And it's... Well, it's an unspeakable travesty, I think. (laughs) Um, So I'll move quickly on. And I'll take two rather plain verses of the Middle Kingdom poem to see how we can try to approach their poetry. This passage is preserved in only two manuscripts, uh, one from the cemeteries of 12th Dynasty Luxor from around 1800 BCE, and the other, later one, comes from nearby Deir medina around 1200. This paucity of manuscripts is simply because this passage occurs quite late in the poem, and ancient copyists, a bit like some modern students, tend to drop away as the poem progresses. The plot, Is well known. Sinuha has lived abroad unhappily for much of his life and he has returned to the Egyptian court, has collapsed in terror as he meets the king and now he waits for the king to announce his fate, having just declared... Look,
1: I am in front of you and life is yours. May your Majesty do as he desires.
0: It is a tense moment and one that we've been expecting for many verses. In the 12th dynasty manuscript, the poet begins a new episode after this. The red ink indicates the start of a new stanza. And the royal
1: children were ushered in, and his majesty said to the queen, Look, Sinuhe has returned as an Asiatic, an offspring of the Syrians.
0: The verb form in the rubric has ellipsis, and probably an error. It is the end of a line, and the copyist was perhaps distracted by slightly bungling the red ink. He often did this. And then, after the king's epigrammatic couplet, the verses that I'll concentrate on.
1: She gave a very great cry, and the royal children shrieked
0: as one. There are a few grammatical all lexicographical difficulties here. And so the verses have attracted remarkably little academic comment. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they lack significance, of course. And it's worth noting that the scribe is copying with attention to the sense here. He re his pen at the start of she gave. So I think we have to trust the manuscript here, even the suffix pronouns, which is quite important later on. In the previous verses, these royal children have conducted Senuha into the palace. So we should imagine that this is a formal part of the reception of a foreign dignitary or a high official, such as is alluded to in the funerary self-presentation of Count Montuhotep. The word usher, setcha tells us what we need to know about the atmosphere. And we can see children being ceremonially ushered for example, in the much later tomb chapel of the royal steward Cheruef from around 1325 BCE. The poem takes place in the same physical setting as this scene, where children are performing a ceremony before a king who sits, exactly as in the poem, on the great throne in a canopy of gold. It soon becomes... Clear in this stately passage from their reactions that neither they or the Queen have been informed of Sinuhe's identity before now. They have ushered him to the King without recognizing him, and then the King must have spoken with Sinuhe in the throne room, but we now realize this retrospectively without them. So now they are surprised to be told that this is Sinuhe. Their shock, as this is staged, means that their shock is also a surprise for the audience. It is also clear, but not explicitly narrated, that when the royal children were ushered in, so too was the queen. Elsewhere, in Kerouev's tomb chapel, a queen appears beside royal children, but as a separate person, distinctive in dress and status. An ancient audience would have been familiar with this etiquette, of course, and might not have been puzzled by any of this. But even so, the poet stages it so that the queen is not described as entering the throne room, but instead she appears in the text suddenly from nowhere when the king tells her about Sinuha.
1: And she gave a very great cry.
0: That is presumably not part of regular etiquette. But how can we prove it? It might conceivably be a cry of joy to greet a visitor, perhaps like the trilling noise that modern Egyptian women make at weddings. However, in official texts, elite behavior is often associated with quietness, and contemporaneous statues of royal women give the impression of an imposing restraint, which is what we might expect the queen to display here. She doesn't. In thematic terms, a noise is very appropriate as a reaction. The poem has had many descriptions of speech, shouts, even lowing cattle. It is very much about communication, both written and oral, the spoken and the unspoken. The preceding scene is one of great tension, and we are still not certain how the king will react. So the queen's response is a great moment. A lot hangs, a life hangs, on what she might say, but all she does is to give a very great cry. So both Sinuha and the audience, ancient and modern, need to know what sort of cry it is. If we turn to the Thesaurus Linguae egyptii and the great Egyptian Book for tested uses of the word sebe, we can build up a sense of its possible overtones, desperately hoping and assuming that the ancient poet will not have been using the word at all ironically. Sebe occurs, for example, in a mythological text from Elohun, where mourners cry out. It is used in funerary texts for the cries of the mourning goddesses Isis and Nephthys, so it has an archetypal aspect. Mourning is one of the few emotions where figures in Egyptian art are contorted, so it is culturally quite a violent reaction. Sebe is almost always negative and dolorous, and it has been so for centuries. But most immediately and most relevantly, it is featured as a verb earlier in the poem where Sinu has shot a Goliath-like foreign challenger who cried out, Sebe, and fell on his face. Sebe is the cry of being fatally wounded. This was perhaps ten minutes earlier in a recital, so it could have been quite immediate in an audience's mind. The rather forceful verb, wedi, that is used of the Queen giving her cry, also occurs in the same passage where Sinuhe gave his war cry on the dead challenger's back. The Queen here then echoes two very different shouts, both of which were bloody and extreme, as in this somewhat lurid illustration from around 1913. And they were both very masculine, increasing the sense of this cry being unexpected from this royal lady in the court throne room. And it is not just a cry, like the shot challengers. As the audience hears the verse, thanks to the standard word order of early Egyptian, it becomes a great cry. And then not only that, but a very great cry. It starts strong, and it gets stronger. Perhaps these three words sebe might have been gasped out by a performer, either slow or fast. The poem ensures that we cannot think it is...
1: Oh, an unexpected dinner guest.
0: It is instead, instead something a little bit stronger. Ah! You see what I mean? and even the word a uh-uh, a great adds to the dolorous overtones by echoing sinu his ominous phrase from a little earlier where his traumatic history was like an unrepeatably great matter het a a his great matter the trauma of his life is responded to with a great cry to be philological the phrase a uh-uh, a where it, intrigues me it occurs in the companion poem the eloquent peasant, copied by the same 12th dynasty scribe in an excessive and painful context when the hero is viciously beaten.
1: And this peasant now wept very greatly for the pain of what was being done to him.
0: This is not the usual phrase for excess in the Middle Kingdom poems. Our it in itself cannot be colloquial as it occurs in the monumental annals of Amnemhat II, where a list of goods includes gold and every very greatly beautiful thing. Nonetheless, I think the line has a sense of an inappropriately low register. The phrase occurs in the later Middle Egyptian tale of King Nefekara and General Sarsenet, where something is said to be sweet, very greatly so. And it occurs in the late Egyptian contendings of Horus and Seth, where, for example, Seth suffered badly, very greatly. In that story, great cries characterise the impossible divine court to humorous effect. The great company of gods lacks any sense of restraint. These parallels suggest a sense of excessive emotion that contrasts with the stately overtones of ushering in, and with the palace setting. The tonal shift might be humorous. The king makes a regal pronouncement in a formal symmetrically phrased couplet, and the queen screams. The poet follows this with, and the royal children shrieked as one, literally were in a sh- single shriek, Dute wat. Dute seems to be very closely parallel in meaning with Seba, and this verse echoes a much earlier fatal scene where one, wa of the royal children was summoned after the old king's death. So even here, the choice of words yet again has a slightly ominous overtone. Nevertheless, there's something potentially comic in royal women all screaming out in unison. In one fully staged performance in Brooklyn, we tried acting this out, and the audience always laughed. Living audiences are deplorably anachronistic as evidence, of course, but unfortunately they are the only sort available. <laughs> Do please try not to be anachronistic. Um, what might the effect of these narrated cries have been on the ancient audiences? Perhaps the intent was programmatic and seriously ideological. The cultural resonance of mourning women would create a sense of the hero's symbolic death and rebirth. Sinuha has collapsed, he knows not life from death, and then he is mourned with this cry before his rebirth as a proper Egyptian. Or perhaps it is a sign of the intimacy that he has attained. And we know that palaces could be remarkably small face-to-face arenas, as with the throne room in Mednet-Habu, a small intimate chamber at the very back of the building. The ancient audience could have been impressed by this spontaneous and intense reaction, which proves how important this old man is to the royal family. The words evoke grief and pain, and encourage us to see the reaction as potentially dark, but the registers shift so that the effect of this is perhaps left open. I think there's a gap between expected behavior and reality, which could be comic, But which is of course also exactly what has made Sunuha's life a near disaster. So perhaps it is funny, or perhaps it is not so funny after all, or, philological horror, a bit of both. It's worth noting that the royal women need not have reacted like this in the throne room. We can easily imagine a text where they cried out in shock.
1: A wonder that has not been seen before.
0: Or, in a phrase from earlier in the poem,
1: most happy welcome.
0: We can even imagine a text where they shrieked, but with joy. No, the shriek is not actually inevitable in this longed-for happy ending of recognition. Whatever it is, it is not a simple scene of unambiguous joy. It is perhaps not a simple scene at all. And what does the Queen herself feel as she cries? It takes us a while to realise that the poet does not actually tell us. The narrative voice is normally very objective in Middle Kingdom poems, but usually the mood is clear. Of course, she must be glad, but the cry, Sebe, is grief-stricken. A 12th dynasty performer might conceivably have paused and acted out the cry, colouring it with the appropriate emotion, having decided what the Queen should be feeling. Any uncertainty might have been resolved by a performance. But the way in which the co-text is structured prevents the audience from finding out. The syntax carries us on, suggesting no space for any improvised scream by a performer. The poet immediately tells us... And they said unto his majesty...
1: It is not really he, Sovereign, my lord. And his majesty said, It is really he.
0: The inarticulate, loud reaction of the queen gives way again to clear, precise dialogue, which might give a sense of renewed order and evenness, everything as it should be. The word unto moves the tone back to a high formal register, the sudden narrative shock, of the shriek is over. What we hear next is apparently a question or it might be a statement. Grammarians differ in their analysis of a key word but modern linguistic uncertainty is only one reason to question what is being said. Think how many different ways this short exchange could be voiced. Is what they say an utterance of incredulity, shock, horror or joy? And then the king's reply. Is he smiling at this ridiculous scene? It is really he. Or scornful about Sinuhe's having gone native?
1: It is really he.
0: Or is it a lament for the tragic confusion of the human heart?
1: It is really he.
0: The words, the surface of the words, of the dialogue, do not really resolve the uncertain tone of the preceding verses. And while it is all perfectly natural and spontaneous, this simple exchange goes to the thematic heart of the poem. Who actually is Sinuhe now? Is he the same as he was at the start of this poem about cultural and personal identity? Is he still an Egyptian? Or has he become a bizarrely exotic Asiatic? The words themselves are simple. How reassuring for Egyptologists. The emotions are not. The simplicity of the diction reminds me, say, of another recognition scene between Lear and Cordelia, where simple language carries a huge emotional charge from everything that has gone before and from all the cultural weight that lies behind the writing. Now, is this just an interpretive anachronism by a slightly over-emotional middle-aged gay man? Perhaps. But the adverbial phrase M Ma'at suggests not. It is literally in truth. Really? In truth. Ma'at, truth justice, order, is the central ethical value of Egyptian culture, a word that is eulogized in the eloquent peasant, but which occurs nowhere else in Sanuhe's divergent life story. The way of truth is expounded in the didactic poems of the period and extolled on funerary monuments, and is so very different from Senuhe's own life. The apparently spontaneous phrase mobilizes the word of ancient Egyptian culture, indicating the potential resonance of the moment, but it does so adverbially, subtly, accidentally, signaling that more is going on than the words say. How very unphilological of the poet. Finally, truth appears. The passage as a whole is also slightly fissured in its phrasing, which adds to the impression of confusing wonder in all this resonance. It is unclear exactly who is asking. It is not really he. The king had addressed the queen in the singular with look, mech, she alone cries out, all the children cry out, and then they speak. Perhaps this gives a sense of gathering excitement as more voices are heard but they say, sovereign, my lord, which might imply that it is a single person, the queen, who is speaking. Perhaps the children are still speaking in one voice, or perhaps they are all speaking out separately. But if so, does they refer to the children only, who are the last people mentioned, or do they include the queen? If they doesn't, is the Queen then silent after her cry? As the passage continues, it looks increasingly as if they adjust the children, since the song that they subsequently sing alludes to her in the third person as the lady of all. So she is apparently silent, apart from her shriek, making her a character who never actually speaks. All we ever know of her emotions is her single cry. And these confusing pronouns unsettle us and I think increase our involvement in what is happening. And what can happen next after all this screaming? The courtly tone is immediately and emphatically re-established in the next verses.
1: Now they had brought with them their many necklaces, their rattles and their sistra, and they presented them to his majesty. Your hands upon the beauty, enduring king, these insignia of the Lady of Heaven.
0: A sublime lyric follows, pleading for Sinuha's reintegration and smoothing over the problems of the preceding events. This response is narrated as impressively spontaneous after their shock. They scream in unison, have a short exchange with the king, and promptly launch into a synchronized choral ode. Whatever they are, these royal children are highly performative, and their song will resolve the tone of the whole episode. They speak again together in a single voice, but now significantly they use regular plural pronouns as a group. The scholars have provided various different interpretations of their densely elusive song, which I think reflects, albeit unintentionally, the tonal complexity of the whole episode. Uh, recently, Scott Morshaw, bizarrely, has argued that the children are male bodyguards offering their salaries to pay a ransom for Sinuha, while the great Philippe Deschamps instead stressed the song's allusion to mythological pacification of the creator god through sex. However, the most immediate parallel for the original audiences was probably a ritual where an official was presented with the blessing of the goddess Hathor as shown in this tomb at Mer and similar scenes are found on many tomb walls elsewhere. A royal prototype for this ceremony is presented in a fragment, now lost, from the cemetery at El lisht where Hathor herself offers her necklace to the king with the same ritualised gesture. These non-textual visual parallels show that the royal children, although grammatically ungendered, must be imagined as female and this colours the atmosphere of the episode and of their cries. If their gender is indicated, their age is not. Modern commentators often assume that the children are young, although Royal Child is a courtly adult title, and this tendency found a rather cloying expression in the Hollywood film. This is based on Mika Valtari's novel, um, which was set catastrophically in the Amana period, and so was influenced by the unusual scenes of Akhenaten's young daughters as in the famous wall painting now in the Ashmolean Museum. If we read Sinuhe's narrative in naturalistic terms, these children must actually be pretty middle-aged, having known him before his life abroad, but this is not necessarily how we are meant to read poetry. They are implicitly presented as unchanged in contrast to Sinuhe, whose aging is repeatedly mentioned. As females performing an eroticized rite of renewal, they are intended to be imagined, unchronologically, as young and sensuous, very much as Flinders Petrie's archaeological illustrator pictured them in 1895. So they contrast with the masculinity of the bloody prize, and when they shriek, it could well have been for the original audiences charming, funny, even cute. Their charm is important, since it dismisses any lingering grief or shock about Sinuhe's homecoming. The tone of the preceding episode is gradually resolved and clarified, but only retrospectively. The trauma of his return will be forgotten as they sing, almost forgotten. I suggested that the scene is full of minor uncertainties that unsettle the audience, as well as the shock of the cry. One indication of this is the New Kingdom version of the text from five centuries later, whose redactors, exactly like modern editors and academics, did not appreciate such ambivalent things. By the time the huge Ashmolean ostracon of Sinuhe was copied in Der al-Medina, the poem had been quite extensively rewritten into a slightly more regular narrative. The women's reaction to the king's speech is now more of a separate episode and less sudden. Their reaction is plural, then they, Gray, gave a cry. The queen, as a distinctive actor, has been written out of the scene, and their question is addressed to our lord. When they enter, it is now all of them, me, shout send. And this bland, regularising addition puts the emphasis on the unified mass of the female reaction. As with so many texts, time passes and the fissures in a poem are smoothed over, regularised, normalised. But the episode was apparently still resonant. In the temple of Hatshepsut at Elephantine, a local goddess says to the ruler, just as in the poem, your hands to beauty. This is perhaps only part of a shared liturgical intertext. But in Nefertari's temple at Abu Simbel, Hathor makes the same gesture to Ramses II with the words, Two hands upon the beauties,
1: enduring king, the insignia for the lord of the two lands.
0: Details of the phrasing suggest that the composer was mindful of Sinuhe. The ritual was certainly still familiar and this now classic passage may have colored people's perceptions of it. Perhaps this was simply because of the fine composition of the old lyric, but I wonder if the vividness of the whole episode was also influential. Might these scenes even be indirect echoes of the royal women shrieking as they see Sinuha? The modern reception of the episode has also been striking. Authors um, have consistently imagined that the Queen and Sinuhe were in love, and actors during our rehearsals of the poem have joked about the same thing, unprompted. And I really don't understand why. Guy Boothby's short story of 1904, a professor of Egyptology, has a ridiculously sensationalist version of this idea. The Queen has been reincarnated as one Miss Cecilia Westmoreland from Yorkshire, and her lover sinew her as Professor Constanides, who begs forgiveness um, for having stabbed her in the 12th dynasty. Boothby's romantic rewriting draws on his colonialist expectations of harem conspiracies and amorous intrigues, as do, rather embarrassingly, contemporaneous academic discussions. Mika Valtari's novel, I should say mercifully, does not include a version of this romance although Sinuhe does seem to be unfortunately oversexed, as you can see from the cover. <laughs> in contrast, the Egyptian laureate Naguib Mufouz also imagined a similar love triangle in his moving short story of 1942, The Return of Sinuhe. Here, Sinuhe is received by his rival, the king, after a 40 years absence, and then is summoned privately by the queen.
1: He crossed the threshold of her room like a man walking in his sleep. He reached her throne in seconds. Lifting his eyes to her, he saw the face of his companion, whose youthful bloom the years had withered. Of her former loveliness, only faint traces remained. Bowing to her in reverence, he kissed the hem of her robe. Queen then spoke to him, without concealing her astonishment, My God, is this truly our Prince Senuhe? Raising up to him her eyes filled with dreams, she said to him tenderly, Prince Senuhe, you have told us your story, but do you know ours?
0: And then she confesses that she always loved him and not the king and that it was Sinuhe's sudden flight that buried their happiness alive forcing her to marry his rival. In this subtle rewriting of the recognition scene, there is no cry. The romance may be anachronistic, but it's also a profound and sympathetic response to the poem's meditation on the fateful choices the human heart can make. Unsurprisingly, These ancient poems are more alive and more passionately relevant to life for modern Egyptian artists than they are for European Egyptologists, with Ardaf Sueyf citing the eloquent peasant in connection with the protests in Tahrir Square. But why the romance? For post-romantic heterosexual readers, the most significant emotional bond in any text is usually that between the main male and female characters. But not all readers are necessarily heterosexual. And over the millennia, most of Sinuha's readers have certainly been pre-romantic. In the Middle Kingdom, the key relationship in the poem was that between Sinuha and his king, St. So if the poem was in any way romantic, it was slightly homoerotic. But the persistent modern obsession with Sinuhe and the Queen, perhaps reflects an intuitive awareness that she is not just a stage prop like other literary wives. She is Sinuhe's patroness, associated with the goddess Hathor, the divine lady of the sycamore tree, Nehet, that gives him his name, Nehet, Sinuhe, the son of the sycamore, a name as resonant as Hardy's Gabriel Oak. And this is the tree that is everywhere in Egypt, An image of home. The Queen's hathoric significance is elusive but pervasive, making her reaction here so crucial and noticeable. The opening lines of the poem introduce Sinuha as her servant and he has prayed, May I greet the mistress
1: of the land who is in his palace and hear her children's messages. May I follow the lady of all, and then she shall tell me that all is well with her children.
0: So she is not above speaking to him. It has been prayed for, wished for, and here it does not happen. It might, of course, be decorous in the throne room that she remains aloof and unspeaking, but if she is unspeaking, she is far from silent.
1: She gave a very great cry.
0: (laughs) Why does the poet choose that reaction? And why has the scene had such an impact on apparently both ancient and modern audiences? I think, but of course I cannot prove it, that this cry gives us a touch of the real, a disruptively human emotion that breaks through the normative expectations of official discourse. This is the world of Middle Kingdom poetry, where lives are not perfect or simple, where the awkward facts of the inner life, so championed by E.M. Forster millennia later, already have power. We are caught up in what were already archaic ritualized procedures and costumes, but these need not exclude emotion I hope not, not even at Oxford. Oh, I'm really screwed. At the heart of a grandiose formal ceremony, the poet has placed very deliberately, very carefully, a witless, terrified man and a screaming woman. So she reminds me a little of Homer's Penelope, suspicious and not joyful at news of her husband's return. Experiencing joy as grief seems so very, another anachronistic, unphilological word, so very recognizably human. Significantly, no modern commentator has thought the Queen's reaction in any way odd. Perhaps it embodies tension being released, tension that both characters and audience have been feeling as the recognition scene is played out, postponing the resolution, waiting for the ending. Who would not scream? This moment of recognition is the only time that the Queen actually finally appears in the narrative. And she will stay in our memories like this, just inside the throne room, looking at this unrecognizable man. We are shown that she feels, but we are not told exactly what. So she also reminds me a little of Shakespeare's Hermione at the end of The Winter's Tale. As with that wronged Queen silent on the statue pedestal, the lack of description means that we can only imagine the depth of her feeling, and what Hermione feels has been imagined very differently by various artists and various actors. These uncertainties, this lack of simplicity draw us in. We are encouraged, we are forced to speculate, to empathize, and the emotion we project onto her is perhaps the stronger for its fluid imagined quality, its sheer unspokenness. Unless, of course, we are being philological, in which case there is no question. She simply makes a loud noise. The emotions of these much later fictional figures such as Hermione or even Lucy Honeychurch on that Tuscan hillside inform us objectively about the historical discourses that we study, proto-Baroque sensibilities, Edwardian attitudes to sexuality, what they feel is important for their plots, but it is clear with such comparatively immediate contemporaneous works that what we as their audiences feel also matters. That is how meaning is created. The key to such passages is always our reaction, even when the poem is from such a different and distant culture. And of all academic responses to this passage, the most revealing is Sir Alan Gardner's. I've I've spent much of my career poking fun at his non-poetic soul, but even he described this scene as a delicious touch. And he wrote in his notes on the story of Sinuhe in 1916.
1: There is nothing more vivid in the tale, I might almost say in any tale, than the picture of Sanuha's recognition at court as by a magic touch we are carried back 4,000 years to witness Sir abject panic as he flings himself on the ground at Pharaoh's feet, and to behold the tolerant bonhomie of Pharaoh as he half ironically introduces the dust-stained wanderer to the queen. We can almost hear the queen's incredulous shock of surprise, almost see the twinkling feet of the little princesses as, with dance and song, They plead that the stranger may be
0: pardoned. And this I should add in a philological commentary too. Perhaps philologists can feel after all. As I remember my predecessor noting in class many years ago, it is all horribly under-theorized and sentimentalized. Those Hollywood-style twinkling feet and how Edwardian his court sounds. But partly because Sir Alan's reaction is so out of character and so heartfelt, it is perhaps the best indication of how powerful this ancient poetry can still be. And so I end by proposing that the Queen's incredulous shriek can stand as an emblem, a model of our interactions with ancient Egyptian poetry as a whole. descends from her formality and reacts to the King's words. If she can feel, we can too, and acknowledge the passionate visceral materiality of this poetry and respond to the touch of the real that is so carefully staged in this passage. Always in a modern recital, the pace quickens and the audience sits up at this point. The scene composes itself for a moment that embodies the whole story, As the Queen recognizes the man before her for what he really is and shows us that she feels. For a 4,000 year old text to resonate so strongly across such cultural differences and across so many generations of the dead, so as to undermine the detachment of a philologist like Sir Alan that is no small achievement for a piece of writing. But perhaps this great resonance shouldn't be such a shock for us since after all isn't this in some sense exactly what the poor old poet has been trying to tell us all along when he says that the Queen
1: gave a very great cry.